Why spend hours searching dealerships, comparing makes and models? Find the best of BC's inventory in one place, todaysdrive.com. You'll have access to inventory across BC, where you can easily find a vehicle that fits your needs and gets you where you need to go in comfort. Get in the driver's seat. Don't miss out on the many options we have available for you. Powered by Black Press Media, todaysdrive.com connects you with exclusive new and used car deals. This is the Mojon Sports Podcast. A deeper dive into the great personalities we know and love. Now, here's your host, Bob the Moj Marjanovich. Welcome. Today's bio features the one and only Gino Ojik, arguably the most popular Canuck of all time. You want to talk about storytelling? You want to talk about a great journey? Gino Ojik is going to tell us quite a bit coming up in this interview. Gino Ojik, next. Redefine how you lead. Take the next step in your leadership journey with Ignite Management. Become a leader that positively impacts those around you. Create an environment where your team thrives. Be in control of your own development with a detailed analysis of your leadership style, complete with actionable insights and recommendations. Visit ignitemanagement.ca for more info. This is the Mojon Sports Podcast. Time now for our feature bio. Here's Bob the Moj Marjanovich. Our bio series continues today with probably one of the most popular, if not the most popular Canuck of all time, the Algonquin Enforcer, the Manawaki Mauler, the one and only Gino Ochek. Gino, thanks for stopping by today. Yeah, happy to be part of your podcast, Moj. It's nice to see you getting in the podcast world and getting up to date with new technology is a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, you know what? We all got to evolve, right? When I think of Gino Ochek, I think of just, again, one of the big fan favorites in Canuck history. Not too much is known about Gino and how he got started in hockey, how he got involved in the sport. Tell us about Gino Ojik growing up and how you got involved in the sport. My dad played hockey at residential school and he was a big hockey fan. And when I was five years old, he took me to this outdoor skating rink, just let me go and I was too young to play in one of the teams so he put me in figure skating and that's how I learned how to skate and I was really quick I started off with a chair and then really quickly I was able to go on my own and all through my life my dad coached me we played with the reserve teams we played against all other reserves all over Quebec and Ontario we had a lot of fun the best time of my life growing up playing hockey Gino Ojik, a figure skater. You've got to give us more info on that because that one's not sliding by. Do you have any pictures at least of you in some figure skating outfits? No. <laughs> Did you ever compete at all in figure skating? It was just a way to get out there and skate. I never bought figure skates or anything like that. It was just skating, getting out there for the hour to skate. So what were your first memories of hockey? Playing, I guess, novice hockey. I, I fell down, and one, one of the guys who was really a good skater hit the brakes and cut me in the forehead. This is the first time I remember playing hockey. We didn't have any masks back then. We only had helmets. That's the first thing I remember about playing hockey. Growing up in Quebec, I imagine everybody around you must have been Canadians fans. Were you a Canadian fan growing up? Did you idolize anybody on those teams, or were there, was there somebody else that you really kind of looked up to? 
I was a Canadian fan, that for sure. Guy Lafleur, I really liked Yvonne Cournoyer. But the player that I admired the most was Stan Jonathan because he was First Nations and he scored, I think, 27 goals one year. And he was an enforcer. And even from a young age, when we played outside hockey, I was always Stan Jonathan fighting Chris Nyland. I always wanted to be the enforcer. And that's kind of different because I think a lot of times, Gino, players that are really skilled players and they eventually become pigeonholed or typecast as enforcers, right? To get to the National Hockey League, don't kid yourself. You need a lot of skill, but I remember seeing stats on Nick Kiprios. He scored like 44 goals or whatever in 48 games in junior. So you're saying you started off as an enforcer, just worked your way up through that way? No, I like when I played on the reserve team, I was the best player on the team. I was the leading scorer. And what happened was I went to junior and I never had practice before. I never had a practice. We used to always scrimmage. That was our practice. And we got to junior and these guys were skating around, flying around, doing all kinds of drills. And I was wondering what the hell's going on. And so from there, I figured out that I wasn't as good as the other guys were. And I had to find a role for me to stick with the team. And nobody wanted to do the enforcer role. And uh, I gladly picked that role. And it got me all the way to the NHL. But I always improved as a player. And as the year went on, I was learning all the practices. And Bob Hartley, who was the coach, told me, you're not going to play much. But if you do the job for me, I'll get you drafted into major junior next year. I was playing junior A in Oxford. He kept his word. He got me drafted to Laval Titans. And I played there as an 18-year-old. And I got a coach there, Pauline Bordelo, who was really a skilled coach. He played for the Canucks a long time ago. But he played most of his career in, in Europe. And when he came, he was doing all these European practices where you're passing, skating, handling the puck. And I really improved as a player there until I was able to play a regular shift with the two top players on our team. I ride shotgun to protect them. Denny Jolifu and Donald Odette. I played that year. I ended up getting, I don't know, 10, 12 goals. And as a 19-year-old, I ended up getting drafted to Vancouver because I was able to play a regular shift on the team and it all worked out. When did you realize that you had a future in hockey? When I was 19 years old, my agent, he wasn't my agent, but he came and seen me, Gilles Lupien. He said, if you keep working hard and you keep at it, you got a chance to get drafted in the NHL. And he says, I want to be your agent. I said, perfect. What do I need to do? And he says, you got to work hard. You got to keep improving every day and you got to get in great shape. So from that time on, I went to the gym every day and really got strong physically and I remember when I got drafted that year every team asked me do you work out do you lift weights and I was yeah I told them yeah I do that was important to them that uh, you worked out and lifted weights even back then in 1994 and enforcer they really wanted you to be fit in the weight room and fit with your cardio talk about First Nations influences you mentioned Stan Jonathan I remember Henry Boucher as well you probably remember him from War Road, Minnesota. What type of obstacles did you face? Or even, I imagine there was some racism at some points in terms of being First Nations. I was lucky because I was one of the enforcers and people didn't want to piss me off. I never got too much racism 
there was a little bit when I played junior, one guy came on the ice with a Indian chief address and, and did the old blue and, uh, but that was about it. I was really lucky and my teammates took to me and really took a liking to me and they started calling me chief, but in a good way. And I was very fortunate that I never faced too much racism. The only time I faced racism, really, when I was done, I played a year in Alberta. and We put a native team together to try to win the Allen Cup. And it was really racist there in Alberta that year that we played there, that's for sure. You get to Vancouver. We'll talk about that. But young Gene Ojek was a bit of a crazy man. I remember the nights of the Roxy, you and Donald Brashear at the back bar being bartenders. But you look back at it now, is there anything you would have done differently? Or do you just look at it and say it is what it is and it was awesome? It was awesome. The best time of our lives. We're, we're getting paid to get in shape and to be the best that we can be. Like, where else do you get that? They're paying us to play a game. We used to get together on Sundays, go down to the number five and watch football. Great bonding with the guys. The odd time we'd go to the Roxy and whenever we could. And all the guys used to go. And But nowadays, from what I hear, the, they don't even go out to eat anymore. They got their own chefs at the Canucks at the building. And But we used to go out to eat after games. And it was so much fun. Like last night, after the game, Momesa was there and we met up with Sergio and Kirk McLean and Dave Babich. Just the memories is something that a bond that we build is something that will never leave us. The 94 team was a special year. Everybody had career years that year and it just, the bond is there and we're all wondering how we're doing and what we're up to and truly interested in one another. I'll get to 94 in a second, but let's talk about your debut against the Chicago Blackhawks a couple of years earlier. I remember watching the game on TV. You wind up getting, what, three fights? Manson? Manson, two fights. Two fights, and the crowd went bananas because Vancouver, and being a lifelong Canuck fan, Vancouver never really had that type of player in their lineup. Tell everyone what you told Bob McCammon after you got ejected after the second fight and walked into the dressing room. <laughs> yeah, it was my first NHL game, and I really wanted to win that game. And I fought Manson in the first period, and I didn't like the fight. I didn't think we got going enough. And I hit. They were saying Grimson was one of the toughest guys in the league, and I body-checked him against the boards, and I got kicked out for instigator, and we were leading, I think, 4-1 or something like that. And I told Bob McCammon, don't F this off without me. <laughs> yeah, I, heard, I just remember hearing that story and I just howled. And I think you can even see it in the video when you <laughs> see that game. You and Pavel Burry hit it off and became best friends. And just you talk about the odd couple. What was it about you and Pavel that uh, allowed you guys to be so tight? What happened was when you played in the NHL back in those days, Everybody started off on the fourth line and we had a week before we had a game and they put him on a line with me and Ryan Walter. So we were practicing and he was young. He was 20 years old and I was 20 years old and we were both single and we were, all the guys were pretty much in relationships and we just started spending a lot of time together and he didn't know too much English. So I was trying to teach him and then we played a game against Winnipeg and Oh my God, he was flying around and I told Ryan Walter, he's not going to stay with us for too long. <laughs> he's going to move up the lines and he did. 
And then we played a game against LA and there was a big defenseman there. I forget what his name was. And he tried to rough up Babel. The next shift out, I went out and grabbed the guy and fought with him and gave the guy a beat. And from that moment on, we were best friends. And you guys just, like I said, you just clicked and everybody kind of looked at you and you couldn't pick two guys from more opposite sides of the hockey spectrum. And even, I guess, from, from a world spectrum, being growing up in Quebec, Indigenous, compared to a guy being in Russia. What did you guys have in common that allowed you to be such good friends? We both were in culture shock. He left Moscow, which was a huge city. He moved to Vancouver. He was all alone. And all his dad was there and his mom was there. But he was all alone. And I moved from a small reservation. And all of a sudden, I'm in a big city like Vancouver. And I'm like, wow, this is unbelievable. And we became best friends. We, one thing he always did is if we had a two-on-one, he always passed me the puck so I could get an empty net goal. He knew I used to like to score goals. And uh, and whenever somebody picked on him or we wanted to create room, I always made sure to protect him. And it was, it was a match made in heaven. More with Gina OJ coming up. But first, a message from our good friends at OK Tire. Whenever it comes to tires or meeting your automotive needs, I only send my friends to one place. OK Tire in Langley. OK Tire in Langley is more than just tires. It's about complete automotive care, and it's about being treated right by my good friends, the Delaney family. Delaney's OK Tire in Langley, 19863 Fraser Highway, or call them at 604-530-2545. Gino, when you look at this 94 team even now, I mean, you talked about still having that bond with those players. Is it bittersweet considering the fact that you had such a great team it came within one game of winning the Stanley Cup, but at the same time, such great memories. And, man, I was there for those games. I don't think I've ever heard a building louder than game six at the Coliseum when we beat the Rangers that night. And I just remember driving back downtown and there were people out on the streets. It was the entire city was electric. Yeah, it was unbelievable. All that year, a lot of us had career years. I scored 16 goals. Powell scored 60. Trevor had in the 30s. Jeff Portnell had an unbelievable season. And Kirk McLean stood on his head. Probably played the best he've ever played. And everything clicked. We were down 3-1 against Calgary. Pat got mad after the game and really shook us up and got us going and from there we won and we rolled over Dallas and we rolled over the Maple Leafs and I still think about it to this day Nico Lafayette had the wide open net to tie the game and he hit the post and like ah Nate if you go into overtime you never know who wins the game so it was that close one empty net away and it goes either way but they were a stacked team and they had a huge payroll but we gave them every inch they beat us 3-2 the last game. And Trevor Linden and Cliff Browning on the way back to Vancouver, they were devastated. But I was young and naive. I thought, we're going to be back next year and we're going to win it. I thought we'd go back to the finals every second year or something like that. And it never worked out that way. That was the only year we went to the finals. Yeah, it's crazy. You always talk to young players. They always think that you're going to be back there. I think as a veteran, when you've been in the league a few years, you realize how tough it is and to take advantage of that opportunity. How bizarre was it for you, like a couple of years later, to have Keenan in Vancouver, have Messi in Vancouver, basically running the show? Yeah, like right off the bat, Messi goes, oh, this is a country club, and these guys are not as good as they think they are. And right from the bat, he didn't believe in our group. And 
he wanted to get his own guy, Keenan, coaching. So I don't think he had a point in the first 10 games or one point when Rennie was coach. He never broke a sweat. So it was tough coming in, and he took the captaincy from Trevor. Keenan criticizing Trevor. He wouldn't believe in St. Louis. You shut up. You don't have a word to say. You're not a leader on this team. And it was just awful. And There was a line in the sand that he crossed. And we'll talk about Pat Quinn and his impact on you. But the story has it that Keenan wasn't too kind in terms of what he was talking about with Pat Quinn. And you took exception to it. Tell us about that incident. Yeah, he was bad mountain pet Quinn and I said I said Mike you're not going to cross that line if you got something to say against Pat Quinn then we're going to have an issue and he and he changed his position quite quickly <laughs> yeah, yeah I imagine you weren't that diplomatic about it what was it about Pat Quinn that made him such a special human being to you one thing was that is he told me from the start I don't want somebody sitting on the bench who's going to play one or two shifts a game and go out there and fight and one fight away from being out of the league. He said, yeah, I want you to be a player. And I know you're a leader on this team. So every night that you played at least 10 minutes. So with 10 minutes of ice time as a fourth liner and an enforcer, that gives you a chance to throw a hit, to get the momentum going on the team. And you're going to have the chance to score the odd goal. And you feel like you're a part of it. And he gave everybody who played that night a chance to play. And that was, that was, everybody loved playing for him. The star players got their chances on the power play. And if we were up a goal, he'd put the star players, the guy who were scoring goals out there to give him a chance to get a goal at the end of the game. So they felt good about each other. And it was just an amazing time because you always had a chance to produce and you felt like you were part of the group. You were just a special coach. Yeah, the thing is with Pat, when you talk to guys, I don't want to use the word father figure. Maybe you can, but guys just love playing for him. And I remember doing a story many years ago when I was still writing and asking guys who their favorite coaches were. And I was surprised how many guys said Pat Quinn. Guys just love to play for him. Yeah, everything I noticed when the coach is a certain way, a guy who wanted to be physical and had a hot temper and really loved his, his physical players, so anytime he had a team, there was a physical team who didn't back down from everybody, but also he loved the skill players. The only thing he asked is that you play good defensively, you're not a risk taker. But if you were a skilled player, you were going to get your chances to, to score goals, put you on the power play, put you in a position to perform and get your goals and your assists and if you were a role player, then you killed penalties and you got out there and you felt good about yourself, you touched the puck. And if you were an enforcer, then he'd give you at least 10 minutes of ice time and give you a chance to be part of the group. Everybody just loved playing for him because everybody got an opportunity to do something special every night when they played, when they got on the ice. When people talk about hockey and pressure and pressure the players face, they always think of goal scorers or goaltenders, but I think people don't realize how much pressure there is on an enforcer. And I remember seeing you and Donald Brashear one time in the locker room, game day skate. You both had your pads off. It was at Rogers Arena. You both still had your shoulder pads on and your pants, and you guys had one of those little lineup sheets that they put out in the stalls, talking in French. And I said, what are you guys doing? And he said, we're figuring out who we got to scrap tonight. 
people don't realize that how much pressure there is on an enforcement. Like if something happens on the ice to one of your guys, you feel like the entire bench is looking down at you and looking for you to make a response. And what was it like to have that pressure throughout your NHL career? I didn't put much pressure on myself because there was a lot of guys when I played, you'd get these like Tony Twist and Dave Brown and Marty McSorley, they'd come into a game and they'd want to fight you just to prove that how tough they were. I only fought to win the game, to change the momentum in the game. If we were down a goal or we didn't have a good start and I threw a big hit or maybe go after the other team's good players and that caused the fight. If you look at my stats, I had 148 fighting majors, but the other guys, they had 200 and stuff. They would fight the same guy 10 times just to prove how tough they were. And that puts pressure on you because the season starts and you're looking 20 games ahead. I'm going to have to fight Bob Probert that night. But I never looked at it that way. I didn't put pressure on myself to fight. What was important for me was winning hockey games and being a good teammate and sticking up for my teammates. More with Gino Ojic coming up after these messages. You're listening to the Mojon Sports Podcast. Every athlete is looking for a competitive edge, and you can find one at stokodesign.com. The K1 Embrace System wraps your legs with over 90 feet of high-strength support cables that are directly integrated into an ultra-comfortable compression tape. The cabling is positioned to naturally move with you, supporting your knee when you need it most. You can customize your level of support with two control dials in the waistband. This is the future of knee support. Stokadesign.com. You know, when you look at the trade to Long Island for Jason Strudwick, we talked about Keenan there. How tough was that? Because when you talk to players, when they get traded from that first team, it's always, it's, I don't want to say it's like your first girlfriend or something, but it's your first love, whatever. It's the team that you thought you'd play your entire career for. How hard was it to leave Vancouver and go to Long Island? It was hard, but with Keenan being coach, he didn't play you much. If he gave you four or five minutes a night and he would do things like, you know, I was playing right wing that night and then Jim Cummins comes on and he throws me on left wing because he wants me to fight him for no reason. I didn't agree with that because I didn't grow up playing that way. I grew up playing with Pat where you got ice time and uh, you didn't go out there just to fight for no reason. And we didn't have the same philosophy. So I knew my time was up and I knew Trevor went to Long Island. So it was tough leaving Vancouver. I remember having a supper with all my friends and going, that was tough leaving there to go into a spot where you didn't know anybody at all. But it worked out good in Long Island. I ended up being one of the veteran players. Mike Milbury told me, I need you to provide leadership and to be a good pro and to show the kids how important it is to work out. You know, we had Roberto Luongo, Ole Jokinen, all these young players that were first round pick when they were just starting out. So I made sure to be a good teammate and I ended up, I was playing 15, 16 minutes a night in Long Island because they didn't have the depth, the skill players that we had in Vancouver. You got to finish out your career as a Montreal Canadian after a stint in Philadelphia. I imagine that had to be a bit of a dream come true and a nice way to wrap things up. Yeah, it was unbelievable. I got a chance to play in front of my dad every night and my mom and my kids and all family and friends. And again, I was playing like 12, 13 minutes a night in Montreal because they put me on the third line. 
to uh, play a checking role. And I remember it's the best, best I ever played. I went seven games one time without getting a penalty because the coach and uh, the general manager at the time, Michelle Therrien was the coach and the general manager was Andre Savard. He says, I don't want you fighting. I want you to play a checking role. You're doing a great job playing against the other teams. Stop lying. And that's what I want you to do. I want you to be disciplined. If you take stupid penalties, we're not going to address you. So we went really good and I had a great year. And then they signed me to a three-year contract. And I was skating in the summertime, and uh, I got a slap shot behind the head. I got a concussion, and my career was over. I couldn't pass the physical after. I tried a few times to pass the physical. I couldn't pass it. And that's what I say. you got to appreciate every minute that you get to play in the NHL and you get to be a part of it because you never know when it's over. And that's what I was telling Mike Vernon when he came to Vancouver. One thing you got to do, Mike, is save every goddamn penny you can because... Once it's over, they give you, thank you very much for playing, and we appreciate what we've done for it. But you're on your own after. You don't have your teammates every day to be around. The only thing you got left at the end of it is how much money you save if you're set for life to be able to have enough to continue the life that you got when you played. I remember, as I go name drop here, Joe Theismann. I can't even sponsor this one day. I think we'll just call it the Stoko Knee Brace name drop of the, the podcast. <laughs> Theismann, when he broke his leg, I remember him speaking at the Lions Orange Helmet Dinner, and he said he was always Joe Theismann, the football player. And he says when he broke his leg, he was a crossroads because who am I now? I've always been Joe Theismann, the football player. Now who am I? Did you go through the same thing like when hockey was over? Because you're always Gino Ojek, the hockey player. Then all of a sudden it's like, what the hell am I going to be now? Yeah, I was very fortunate when I retired. I got a call from Wayne, who was, uh, he was a counselor at the time in Musqueam on the reserve. And he says, we got an opportunity here to buy a golf course. We really want to buy it, but we don't have the cash to buy it. And we're looking for a partner. And I was like, perfect. That gives me a chance to be part of the team. And so I went there and I bought the golf course and we had 40 employees. And it was just like a hockey team. We had the teaching pros and uh, the guys who worked on the golf course and the people who worked in the pro shops. And we had meetings every week on Wednesdays to see how things are going. And uh, I really felt part of a team. So I was really lucky that I got to do that and uh, made the transition really good because it was here in Vancouver and I was able to get involved with the alumni, which is a group that raises money for charity. And I'm really proud to be an alumni. So with the alumni, we got to see the boys once a week, skate and build some relationships. So I was really lucky that I was able to buy the golf course and to be part of the alumni. So you're doing well in business. So you talked about the golf course, which you were part of at that time. I know you did some deals with Francesco as well, that you guys worked together. And then you have this health scare. And it's more than a scare. It's I remember seeing you at the hospital and seeing how bloated you were and all the water retention and i remember my mom who had passed away because of cardiovascular issues and i was like this ain't good and i honestly thought you were on your last legs but somehow you overcome the odds again and battle through it how life-changing was that how scary was that what were the emotions that you had to battle going through all that i remember before that i thought i was invisible i always thought when i was younger when i was playing in the nhl and even until I got sick, I said, if there's an airplane crash, 
everybody will die, but I'm going to live. I'll go into the washroom on the plane and I'm going to survive. I thought I was invisible. And I remember thinking just before I got sick, this is incredible. Everybody from the 94 team is still alive. Pat Flynn's still alive. My dad's still alive. And we're all going to live forever. This is everybody's healthy in my family. Nobody. And all of a sudden, uh, Pat Flynn passed away. My dad passed away and I got sick. And I went from one day working out three times a week, playing hockey with the alumni, golfing every second day, the super fit guy to two weeks later, they're telling me that I'm going to pass away, that I got this amyloidigosis, which creates protein in your heart and then the blood can't get through and make your will, say your goodbyes to your friends. And, but I never thought I was going to die because I wasn't in any pain. I just couldn't walk around and my legs and my extremities were all swollen. I'm like, oh, if I'm going to die, then can you send me to Ottawa? And the Canucks were nice. They chartered me a plane and sent me to Ottawa so I could be close to my family and my kids. And when we got to Ottawa, they already had started a treatment in Vancouver. But once we got to Ottawa, they, uh, they tried this experimental drug. And Lord and behold, three months later, I'm out of the hospital and I'm off to the races. I'm living. It took me about four or five years to recuperate from it. To get back to myself, I'm, I thank the creator that I'm still alive. And I really now appreciate and learn how life is so precious and to enjoy every moment and to tell your family and your friends and your kids that you love them because you just never know when it's going to be over. I haven't gone through it. People that have gone through health scares and they just talk about, you know, noticing the little things and appreciating a sunrise or a sunset or just a beautiful day and just saying, thank God that I'm still here and thank the creator, as you say, that you're still there. But one thing that's always held through through all of this, you know, is been the love affair that Canuck fans have with you. And when you were brought onto the ice for special occasions recently, you being honored, Pavel being honored, the team being honored, 94, that is whatever, it, you always get the biggest ovations. And what does that mean to you to know that Canuck Nation, you show up at a game now and they flash you on the big screen, out come the Geno chance. What does that mean to you? And especially like now that it's a generation gone by that really didn't watch Geno Ojik growing up, a lot of stuff on YouTube and videos, and they endear themselves to you. That means a lot to me. It's been 32 years since I started out for the Canucks and people still remember and People still stop me on the street and say, Gino, you were a big fan. And uh, I told my kids about you and what you did and we're big fans. But what really touched me the most with the fans is Francesco flew Pavel in to come to some games and stuff. And they, Mike Gillis didn't want to retire Pavel's jersey because he was afraid that the fans didn't want it. And we came to a game in Francesco's suite. And they showed Pavel on the board and he got a standing ovation and everybody was cheering. And to see how touched Pavel was, that the fans remembered him. And it was just unbelievable. And from that on, it started the process to retire his jersey. But he was so touched that the fans forgave him that perhaps going to be traded. Again, like I said, to me, the amazing thing is, and the really cool thing is, to see that younger generation of fans, those fans that maybe are in their 20s or their 30s that didn't watch you play in your prime, but they know the legend and they've been able to go on the internet and watch YouTube fights. We won't even talk about 
Glenn Anderson and Steve. <laughs> <laughs> We've gone over that one a few times. But Gino, as we wrap things up, what's keeping Gino Ojic busy these days? I'm still partners with Francesco in development in Tawasin, and we go to some meetings and stay a part of what's going on. It's been a lot of fun to create wealth amongst First Nations people, to look at families who were struggling to get by and now they're multimillionaires because the land in Vancouver is worth so much and the housing market has gone so high that they have profits that they never would have believed possible. So that's been a lot of fun to be part of that. And I really enjoyed doing that. Hey, Gino, this has been a lot of fun catching up and just talking about your life story. I know there's so many fans that are going to really enjoy hearing from you and hearing what you're up to. And it's always great seeing you at Connect Games and bumping into you and get that golf game in shape, man. We still got a tournament this summer. Yeah, it's really a pleasure to see you, Mode. I know you started out at the same time I did, and you've been around for a long time. And I'm really happy you got into the podcast business and I was able to be one of your guests. I really appreciate it, and I wish you and your group nothing but the best. The Moj on Sports Podcast. For more episodes, check out MojonSports.com. Searching for a new home? Make todayshomebc.com your online home base. With easy-to-search listings and connections to local realtors, everything you need is under one roof. Powered by Black Press Media, you can search hundreds of local listings all in one place. Access the top real estate professionals to help you find the perfect home today at todayshomebc.com.